But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word, that you have sent your word forth uh, to your people, and that we receive it today, now your scripture. Lord, may you, um, we know that your word is living and active, and that by your spirit, you convict us and comfort us. So Lord, may you do that today. Convict us and comfort us with the reality of who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, coming from a country that doesn't play rugby very well, it has been quite an experience to now be living in South Africa during the Rugby World Cup. Uh, Now, for those of you who may be wondering, I am still convinced that American football is the better sport. Uh, We can talk about that afterwards, but I have grown in appreciation and in amazement just how how many green jerseys there are everywhere I go and how passionate and knowledgeable uh, Springboks fans are. Uh, When the box win, uh, the proper response is celebration, and the whole week's conversation is around the amazing tactics that they used, Uh, people are expressing their feelings, how they felt when they saw the game-winning play. Uh, This is the fitting response. Uh, And if someone isn't celebrating, uh, then they're probably an All Blacks fan, uh, secretly. But uh, if, if they lose, then the proper response uh, is disappointment. You can feel the dejection filling the air. And the whole conversation is surrounding uh, how did we lose the game or uh, how did the ref make that call at the end of the game? Well, the main activity of a sports community is to celebrate its team's victories and to console one another in their losses. But what is the main activity of God's people? Well, like a sports fan reacting to the game, uh, the church responds to what God has done for them. But unlike a sports match, which has two options, win or loss, uh, with God, we only get one outcome. And in our psalm today, the psalmist praises God for his absolute power over all creation and his special care for his people, which can only lead to one response. So in this text, we'll see today that in light of God's power and love towards us, our fitting response is to praise him and trust him. In light of God's power and love, our fitting response is to praise him and trust him. And we'll look at this uh, in in three points. Uh, God's power and care in creation. God's power and care in redemption and our response of praise and trust. 
But first, uh, before we dive into the passage, uh, just a brief uh, look at the context surrounding this psalm. Uh, We don't know the specific context of the psalm or who the author was, uh, but we get some hints in verse 2 where it says that God uh, gathers the scattered people of Israel and he builds up Jerusalem. Now, this is likely the psalmist reflecting back on Israel's return from exile in Babylon. God had sent them into exile, and now he is bringing them back to the promised land. And this psalm looks back at God's power and faithfulness to restore his people to the land and to be faithful to his promises. Now, the psalm is structured in three uh, cyclical stanzas, each of which opens with a call, a command, and an exhortation for us, God's people, to arise and praise the Lord. What follows each call to worship are a couple of reasons why God is worthy of praise. The first being his power and care in creation. The second being his power and care in redemption. So we'll first look at how, uh, how we ought to praise God for his power and care in creation. But even then we see that his care for creation Uh, comforts us and shows us truths about his care and power towards us in redemption. Now, some have said that God is too busy to hear their prayers. If God has so many things to care for in creation, how can he possibly have the time or energy uh, to care for me and my needs? But we get an answer to this in verse 4 and 5 where we see God has limitless power and limitless knowledge, such that he determines the exact number of the stars, and he names them each individually. Every new star born in a distant nebula to every star that collapses into a black hole is under his supervision and has been ordained and named by God. Now, the way God names these stars is is much like we would name a pet or a stuffed animal. When we name it, it shows that we have authority over it. We have supervision over it. That pet or stuffed animal is under our care. In much the same way, this universe is under God's limitless uh, knowledge, supervision, and care. And his understanding cannot even be measured by space. We can only see so far as as our best telescopes. Now the James Webb Webb Telescope and all the beautiful images that we get from it. And yet God's knowledge is everlasting to everlasting. And as our Lord Jesus said while he was on earth, the Lord knows even the number of hairs on your head, from the number of stars to the number of hairs on your head. How much more then does he notice the prayers of his people, your needs, your desires that you bring before him do not escape his care and understanding. But even if we agree that God has full knowledge of all things, we still may easily despair and wonder, does God really desire to address our small needs? Does he not have uh, bigger things that would uh, capture his desire and his supervision? Why would he want to be bothered with our insignificant needs? But this is not so. For God's deep interest in his creation extends from the highest of stars to the most minute earthly details. We see in this psalm that he is the primary cause of all weather patterns, 
And he's the one who ultimately provides food for the beasts of the field and even the ravens, the smallest of creatures. As Jesus said, if God cares for the sparrow, how much more does he care for you? You who have more value than you who are of much more value to him. Now God's ownership over creation means that he does not need anything from us. We look and see in verse 10, he does not take pleasure in the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. Now this is not saying that God hates horses or that he's happier if you skip leg day, as much as some of you may like that excuse. No, this is language of conquest and battle. In the ancient world, the king was as strong as his army. His strength was in his horses who led the chariots into battle. His strength was in his strong men who, uh, who were soldiers, his footmen who carried out great military conquests. And the temptation in the ancient world would have been for a king to do great feats of honor to satisfy their deity. But God takes no pleasure in this. He does not need human strength to accomplish his deeds. He does not need humans to complete him or to care for him. If he needed us to care for him, then we could not rely on him to care for us. We could not trust him as the self-sufficient Lord that he is. And so let us praise him then for this truth about himself, that he is self-sufficient, that he does not need us, and he can answer our prayers. He is certainly to be praised. Now this Praise of God and his power over creation comes to a crescendo in verses 15 to 19, which display the power of the word of the Lord. And just as God spoke the world into being, so he sustains it by the power of his word. Like a messenger, God's word runs forth into creation. It runs swiftly and it carries his orders. Like a messenger in the ancient times would have carried the orders of a king to the far off reaches of his kingdom. His rule extends over all seasons. And his rule is compared to the most basic and rudimentary of human tasks. The Lord drops snow on the earth like wool drifts down from a farmer shearing his sheep. The Lord scatters frost across the face of the earth like a, a human would scatter ashes. The Lord tosses down hail, the mighty hailstones that batter our roofs are dropped by the Lord like a person brushing crumbs off the dinner table onto the floor. A change of seasons, this is nothing for the Lord in his power. A word from him and the snow arrives, another word and it melts, and the rains come and the warm berg wind comes uh, to usher in the summer. But for us, who can stand his cold? Who can face these great changes in the great power of the Lord. And yet we can trust him that he is for us. But we are not only utterly dependent before God as creatures in his wide creation, but if we look into ourselves and we look at our own heart, we will see that before him, we are in our sin and transgression that so often, rather than relying on the Lord, In his sovereign control over all things, we instead rely on our own power. We seek our own autonomy and self-dependency. In which case, who can stand before the Lord? 
We ought to ask, who can stand before the righteous God who, as this psalm says, casts the wicked to the ground? There would be no hope before such a Lord. So how can we praise him? Well, that brings us to God's power and care in redemption. The second reason that this psalm gives us to praise our Lord for what he has done for us, specifically to save us and to draw us to himself. Now, in the immediate context of this psalm, the blessings of God covenant with Israel, his blessing towards Israel was expressed in his returning them from exile. Even though Israel had broken the terms of the Mosaic law, which had earned for them judgment, which had earned for them Uh, uh, exile from the land of Canaan. Even despite that, God was faithful to the covenant of grace which he had given to Abraham even beforehand. A gracious covenant and a covenant that he would be faithful to. And so despite their sin, this psalm reflects back and says that God was delighted to return them to the land of Canaan, the place that was promised to them. It was his good pleasure to build up the walls of Jerusalem, to fortify the defenses, and to protect them from evil. And later in verses 13 and 14, the psalmist praises God for restoring peace and prosperity in in the land. The very climax of the psalm comes when God reaffirms that he is still with Israel. His word still endures in Israel. He has given them his statutes and his judgments, and they are theirs forever. For where God's word is, there his people are. And where God's people is, there God's word is. There is no people of God without the word of his salvation. And that is the word that Israel had. But what does that mean for us today? We who are not the nation of Israel, but we live under the new covenant, which was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God's promises to Israel prefigured, they looked ahead to Christ and his coming. Christ who is the fulfillment of all God's promises. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. This psalm, which looked at the blessings that God had given to Israel in the land, was a signpost looking ahead to the blessings and promises of God for eternal salvation that God would give us the new creation, and inheritance with our Lord forever. And through Jesus Christ, these promises belong to you. You who, as Paul says in Galatians, are the true Israel of God. God's word which was spoken in seed form all the way back to Jacob. The word given to Jacob is now spoken in full clarity to you, the gospel of your salvation. You who are once outcasts, from the presence of the Lord by your sin have been gathered near through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus was wounded on your behalf and by his wounds you are healed so that you would not have to now stand before the Lord in your transgressions. He was exiled from the presence of the Father so that we might dwell in eternity with our God. Jesus was cast down like the wicked so that you might be raised up on the last day into everlasting life. This is the promise that Israel looked ahead to. This is the 
promise that Israel grasped by faith. This is the ultimate expression of God's steadfast love that Israel waited upon and hoped for. And this is what belongs to you, what you have received by your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, even now, God builds his church as his holy temple, the holy city of God, his people, indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he sends out his word, the gospel, to the four corners of the earth to gather people from every nation, his people, the elect, whom he has chosen for himself. He who determines the names and number of every star has chosen and determined and knows the name of each one of his people. And they will not escape his notice. They will not escape the reach of his word, nor will they escape the transformative power of his spirit. And although we do not have physical gates like the people of Jerusalem, that promise of blessing, of protection applies to us. For even now he preserves you and preserves his people by the Holy Spirit. If you have trusted in Christ, then the Holy Spirit has been placed upon you as a seal, a promise and a protection that the evil one will not be able to wrest you from his hand. You are sealed for the day of redemption. The Lord will keep you until Christ returns. This is his promise to you by his word and spirit. And we even get in this psalm a special mention of just how much our Heavenly Father cares for us and cares for his people. We see this in our Heavenly Father's mindfulness for the children among his people. And this is for you children here who are members in part of our body, of this body of Christ. The Lord knows each one of you by name. He cares for you. You do not escape his notice. In fact, he cares so deeply for you that his promises are extended to you. He reaches out and gives you his very promise of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And he speaks every week his words of comfort to you. Even when your hearts are hurting, he binds your wounds. And he invites you to praise him with all of the adults, with all of God's people each Lord's Day. He invites you to gather and be a part of God's people to praise him in thanksgiving for what he has done for you. This is the kind of care of our Lord. No one escapes his notice for his power and his love are immeasurable and cannot be comprehended the limits of his power and love. So in light of this reality of who our God is, of his vast power, his unfailing love, how are we to respond to him? Well, our psalm is clear. The only fitting response to God's power is to praise him and to trust him. For God's power and his care for us are great. Four times the psalm addresses God's people and commands them, exhorts them to praise him. In verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The only thing that can match, that is fitting to what God has done, is a response of praise. And these commands are not directed uh, to the individual, but to God's people as a whole. For when God sends his message out, the good news of his redemption... 
the people that he has chosen gather together to hear that good news, to hear the reality of who God is and what he has done for them. And so as a people now, we get to respond to this message. We join the saints of every, na- of every age since the dawn of time. We join the saints of every nation, tribe, and tongue in a song of praise to our God. And this is a song of praise that we will be singing for all eternity as God's people in answer to what he has done for us and continues to do for us. But this is not the only aspect of our response for we get another dimension in verse 11, another component of our response to what God has done for us. And that is in verse 11 where it says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who wait upon his steadfast love. Our response to God's salvation is to fear him. Now, this may seem a little bit confusing. What does it mean to fear God? Is this saying that we should be terrified of God? That doesn't seem right if if he loves us and has saved us. Or is God like a father that must be respected in awe lest he punish us? And so we must respect him lest we face uh, his judgment. Well, how do we understand the fears? Uh, How do we understand the fear of God and the commandments throughout Scripture that tell us to fear the Lord? Yet, we also get commandments to not fear. For in, in fact, in Isaiah 41, God says, Fear not, because I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. So here we have a connection between God's presence with us and not fearing. And yet we're told to fear the Lord. So what does this mean? Well, the answer lies in the meaning of the fear of the Lord. Notice that here, God's covenantal name, Yahweh, is used. And in your English translation, that'll be uh, Lord, in all caps, how it is translated. This is the name that God used uh, specifically for his people that he has saved. This is the the name that they get to use of their God, because he is their God, and they are his people. This is covenantal language. Because of God's grace, he has chosen for himself a people and brought them into relationship with himself. And so basically, when the Bible says to fear the Lord, uh, what it means is to accept who God has revealed himself to be. That is essentially what the fear of the Lord means with God's covenantal name. And for members of the covenant community, for us, who is it that God has revealed himself to be? Well, we have just read about this in this psalm. This psalm extensively praises the Lord and continues to build on itself of who God is to you. He's the creator who knows all things. Nothing escapes his notice. Not sin, not the needs of his people. Nothing is beyond his reach or his love through the redemption of Christ. Even we who are sinners. This is the God and the word of the good news that we have received. This is what we respond to and what we accept. And the acceptance of this truth is the fear of the Lord. And the acceptance is accompanied by appropriate feelings of awe and wonder. Awe and wonder at what God has done for us what he continues to do for us, how majestic and powerful he is, and yet how relational and personable and present he is to us. So essentially then, the fear of the Lord and trust 
and hope are inseparable. That is why verse 11, uh, the people uh, that it describes who fear God are also those who trust in his steadfast love. They are those who trust in him, who accept what he has said about himself and who live in light of that. In fact, the fear of God is the antidote to all other fears. For if we accept who God is in his power and his care, if we fear the Lord, then we will not be controlled by the fears of this world. We will not become a slave to fear. For the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, as the proverb says. For to know that we live in God's world, a God who is all-powerful, a God who loves, that allows us to properly navigate the world. The psalm says that uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. For in such a world, there is no hope, there is no meaning, there is no comfort, and no reason to hope. Thank goodness that is not the world that we live in. We do not live in a world where fear, fear runs rampant. Uh, we do not live in a world uh, where we can become slaves uh, to fear because we fear the Lord. This means that we must not ignore, then, the sustaining power of God in the ways that he provides for us. If we are to fear the Lord, then we must see and understand the ways in which he provides for us. Even if we get bread from the store or advice from a friend or medicine from the pharmacy, these, even these things are a part of the reality and the way that God, our Father, tenderly cares for us. Just as he brings the rain that waters the grass, which feeds the beasts of the earth, so he cares for us. Just as much in these ways as if he had directly intervened in our life. Just as much in the daily life, in monotony of life, does our Father tenderly care for us. And so, in this case, our natural response to his daily provision is daily praise of our Lord. So let us not forget to praise the Lord for his continued sustaining power in every aspect of our life. But nonetheless, we still live on an earth and in a world full of sin and suffering. We do still experience fear. We experience a fallen world that can so often overwhelm us. We experience wounds and can so often uh, be left with broken hearts. And in times of suffering, it can be so difficult to praise the Lord, to find the strength to offer up thanksgiving. And when the world seems like an absolute chaotic mess, out of control and indifferent to your hurt, sometimes you can only offer up a cry barely more articulate than the cry of a young raven. And yet, God hears you. This psalm is for you in those times. This psalm is meant to ground you in the reality of who God is, that there is a deeper reality than any suffering that you may experience, however severe it may be, that even amidst the suffering, the uncertainty, the chaos, that God hears, just as he is in the, he is in the greatest depths of the universe, he is present with you, and he hears and his promises are sure, just as they were for God's people then in Israel, so they are now. That he will preserve you until the day of redemption, and he will not put your hope to shame.
Indeed, he delights in those who fear him and trust in him and those who cry out to him. But although trials do assault God's people, trials which do cause great sadness, this psalm nonetheless suggests that we are at the core a singing people. We are a singing people because the reality of God, who God is and what he has done is unchangeable no matter what happens and that he is worthy of song and praise. So collectively, our fitting response to God's redemption and care over both creation and what he has done for us is to sing his praises. We see then in this psalm that the power of God is truly wonderful. From how he sustains creation as a whole to how he changes the heart of an individual, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this psalm is itself an example to us of what a fitting response looks like to how God works in our life. Truly, uh, we see his love and power in Christ, the image of the invisible God, Christ who demonstrated God's power on earth in his mastery of the wind and the waves, in his ability to heal the lame and the sick, to heal the brokenhearted. But his greatest demonstration of love was to go to the cross on our behalf, even while we were his enemies, so that he might gather us in as his friends. What kind of care is this? That God would not only know you, but know you in your sin, and yet still desire to be with you. Not only now, but for all eternity. Now we see only dimly, but one day we will see and be in his presence in perfection for eternity. Because as the psalm says, truly his delight is in those who hope in him. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.